Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. It'd be fantastic to see you on those respective platforms. But to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome one of Silicon Valley's hottest SaaS startups, Algolia. Just last week, they announced their $53 million Series B financing led by Excel with participation from Sasta, Point9 Capital, Des Trainer at Intercom, Jotty Bansalad, App Dynamics, and Clark Valberg at Invis. Just to name a few of the fantastic names involved. Joining us from Algolia, we have none other than their founder and CEO, Nicholas Desain. You might remember a prior guest on the show over a year ago. So if you haven't listened to that one, then do check it out in the show notes. But now enough from me. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to hand over to Nicholas Desain, founder and CEO at Algolia. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Nicholas, it's absolutely fantastic to have you back on the show, back on Sasta. A huge thank you to Jason for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, Nicholas. Thank you for having me, Ari. Now, I'd love to start today with a little about you and your move into the wonderful world of SaaS and how you came to found Algolia for all those who've been living under a rock and haven't listened to our first episode. <laughs> okay. So the, the quick story is that we started with a, like a different product back in 2012. It was not yet SaaS. We are building a, a search engine that could be embedded into uh, application, mobile application directly on your mobile, uh, working locally on the device. It was great in terms of the, the user experience and like everything we could be there, but the market was not really there. And so we pivoted to a SaaS offer a few months later. And that's way that's really where it started to work out. And, and talking of kind of where it started to work out, the wonderful Jason Lemkin always says to me and has said before publicly that the first 10 unaffiliated customers is the first sign of pre-success. I'm intrigued, <laughs> having been through a, a pivot from a potentially unsuccessful or not so product market fit ready to a product market fit, would you agree with that statement of the first 10 unaffiliated customers? Yes, I think that some of these customers is, are like are the ones that made our success. Oh, one of them in particular, they were like social cam at... Uh, it was a YC company that got acquired by Autodesk quite a long time ago and has now disappeared. But they, they became one of our first big beta testers. I think their feedback were really key into basically let us realize what we had done, what we had done on mobile at first. Because we were constrained by the hardware of mobile, we had to reinvent search. We couldn't apply the traditional approach. And when we pivoted to SaaS, it took us some time before to realize that what we had done on mobile was such a perfect fit for user-facing search, like consumer-grade search. And it took us like a few months and uh, that feedback was really key into our discovery, like uh, I, I now call that our haha moment. And once we had uh, realized this fit uh, with the, the market, that's when we uh, we wanted to accelerate and started to uh, to look for a first round of funding. And talking about accelerating, uh, you've crossed an incredible milestone being the $10 million in ARR. And so I've got a question from Jason Lemkin here. And he says, what are the key things that change when you cross this milestone? I think that for us, actually, we, I mean, we, we crossed that the milestone last year and at that time we still didn't have any uh, sales ups or marketing ups in place uh, no legal in place I mean we still had so many things to do I think we scaled like uh, so fast that uh, in the end we, we didn't put that in place early enough and so I think that was my one of our biggest learnings that we should have done that faster and that's something we have started to do this year and I think that's really changed the, the way we, we drive the company uh, making us like better also better at predicting the future and I think that's the key here as we continue to scale we are getting better and better at predicting 
something like our immediate and uh, longer term future. I'm intrigued. You said there about kind of the speed of your growth. Do you agree with the move fast and break things analogy? Yes, in a way, but uh, always need to adapt that to your your exact situation. In our case, breaking things is not really uh, possible in terms of product. I mean, uh, the reliability of time of the product is one of the things we are the most proud of, and we wouldn't want to, uh, to compromise that trust we have generating with our customers. But breaking in terms of organization, yes. I mean, uh, we have more than doubled the team in the last 10 months. You cannot simply operate the same way. And so in a way, you are constantly breaking things. I mean, for us, as long as we stay true to our core values, it's completely all right to break things and uh, iterate and, and change the way we operate every day. I'm intrigued with you moving through the, the motions now, so to speak. Uh, I often hear from different founders that have successfully exited in often very large companies that there are very definitive stages where employees of their company fit. So there, there are very few that can scale throughout the growth and life cycle of the company. I'm intrigued with your scaling of Algolia. Is this something that you're seeing yourself? Not yet. Uh, I'm not saying that we won't see that uh, soon but the the first employees we have uh, hired are still there with us today and are like a key part of our company they have grown so far at least as fast as the company has grown and i think that's the same we also should uh, ask the question to ourselves as founders are we able to grow as fast as the company needs us to grow we've been lucky that up to now we like most people have been able to grow uh, at that pace what do you think has allowed you to grow at that pace i had sean rad from tinder on the show and he said that his biggest trouble at one stage of the company was growing as fast as Tinder was. How do you ensure that you grow yourself as fast as Algolia is? I think you need to be super humble about what you don't know. The biggest risk here is to think you have figured it out because every six months it's a new company. So I think the most difficult here is to always think about what the company needs in six months and not today because that's what you should invest on. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued. You said every six months it's a different company. Have you seen a kind of very clear inflection points in company growth and changes from a three-man team to a 10-person team to a 30-person? Have there been those inflection points that are noticeable, or does it much more kind of merge into one startup story? Oh, it's uh, it's not as precise like uh, like as key milestone 30, or like it's not 30, it could be 25 or 35. I think there are like, uh, however, like a few things we could remember in how, uh, like at least some specific things have changed. That could be around operations like uh, it's 19 day the difference between before we had our head of legal and after for example but sometimes it could be about things like culture we saw the culture culture has always been something super important for us but we saw that our culture kind of broke a couple of times like it was not working anymore a couple of times and that triggered like some work on our side to make it uh, better uh, to formalize it mostly like I remember when we were basically until 10 people there was no formalization and then we started to realize people didn't get what we mean what we were saying at that time about like uh, what we meant by ownership and so on and so we started to formalize that and that was just a a wiki page and then maybe when we were like 30, 35 people kind of broke again at that time the culture had become so central 
to who we were. Everyone was speaking about culture every day, but then they didn't understand completely what that meant. If you were to ask someone, oh, why don't we do that? Uh, because of our culture. But why? I mean, the culture was too much a, a default answer. And so we decided at that time to formalize the culture with uh, five key values and, and then to really separate the way we work from the culture. The way we work should change nearly every day. We need to uh, learn and to grow. The key values, however, uh, shouldn't change every day, should stay forever, if at least uh, evolve very slowly. That's a fantastic differentiation. I haven't heard it kind of segmented like that before. Uh, speaking of kind of scaling, though, and, and changing, I'm intrigued that we discuss scaling teams and scaling team members. Have you seen yourself as a leader and a CEO of Algolia change with the scaling of the company? Oh, yes. And I should, uh, I need to change again. When I was uh, speaking about like changing every six months, it's uh, it's for everyone and especially for uh, for the leaders of the company, of course. Like more and more, I need to, I need to learn things I'm not so comfortable with, like participating to a podcast, for example. <laughs> it's kind of part of the role. Uh, no, but uh, that's also around the fundraising around like going uh, to speak with customers or oh, internally too I was speaking about the culture but you know one of the things that's difficult is the way you lead a team change completely between 10 and 100 people 10 people you you know I mean you are in the same office with everyone you are like uh, friends with everyone you can go up a drink everyone knows uh, everything when you are 100 you need to start being careful about making sure you communicate enough making sure you everyone has all the information they need it's super easy to assume that everyone knows what you know, but most of them were not with you three months ago. And so, of course, they don't have the history that lets them understand you. You start to have also a lot of people who change their behavior, not change, but like when they join, you are the CEO, so you are kind of like the, the boss, and they see you as the boss, whereas the, the early employees, they see you as a friend. Uh, it's a very different interaction that you have there, there, and you need to like to break this, these walls with them, and that's a very different work for that you need to do here. How do you look to break it? Is it through organizing socials, meetups, drinks? Uh, how does one break that barrier between friend and boss? And is it healthy actually to break the barrier between friend and boss? I think it is, at least in our in our context. I wouldn't say it's the same everywhere. A few of the things we do, uh, like Holland's, we have like weekly Holland's where all the company is participating. One of the things we've seen working is uh, ask me anything sessions, either with the whole companies or like uh, joining a, a team. Like if you have a team doing an, an off-site, for example, you join them for an evening and and answer all the questions as transparently and truthfully as you can. A big part of who we are is also the trust and the transparency we have. I mean, we're, everyone in the company has access to basically nearly everything, like the, how much cash we have in bank. Our, our compensations even are uh, public internally uh, so that everyone knows how much I make. And so it makes us kind of accountable on how much we communicate, how much we, we give, we empower the people. And I think that's good, but you need to repeat that day after day, how important it is for you to, to provide constantly feedback about how people are behaving and so on. I mean, that's one of the most important things we, we learn here is every single day you need to reinforce that. No, it makes absolute sense. We spoke about the differing stages there within people and, and teams. Uh, and so talking about differing spaces, uh, you sell both a long tail free in addition to a very inexpensive edition plus an enterprise pricing mechanism also. <laughs> so talk to me, does this go against the traditional startup uh, beliefs of concentrated customer profiles? It does, and it's um, it actually on purpose. I remember having like... Uh 
I received advice from like even like four years ago telling me to choose. Either you should go with the, for like after the long tail or after like the enterprises. And we, we made the confused like decisions to uh, to go after both. Betting on a virtual circle there, all the, the awareness we get from working with the community of developers is helping us at enterprise. Like these developers, they become our champions there and they are basically helping us convince these people. Uh, also, we see that developers at enterprise are also becoming kind of the new hero. Like 10 years ago, they couldn't have a say on the table. Today, they are the one deciding of what technology they want to use. And of course, having a good enterprise logos are going to give you more credibility. It's uh, sometimes uh, could become a kind of a conflict in a way because, uh, of course, the way you are going to message, to build your messaging for enterprise is going to be very different than from the long tail. And it feels difficult some, from time to time. But I think it's very important for us, at least, to keep that balance between the two. Our identity, our DNA is really the developer of course, our revenues are coming mostly from enterprise, but we want to keep going after both today. And as long as it's working and it's working today very well, I don't see any reason to change that. Would you say that it's the, the rise of bottoms up selling that's been one of the biggest determinants to your success in getting into the enterprise? Yes. At the same time, I wouldn't compare ourselves to companies like Slack, for example, where you can a team can simply sign up. Projects we're building for enterprise are usually directly pretty big. So it's not as obvious for us. What happens is more like a developer is going to learn about us in his community. Maybe we are doing the search of the framework he's using or for any any such uh, way. And maybe they are going to sign up for a free account for a side project. That's the way they are going to get like uh, to know us better. And then later on, when there is a project, they are going to come back to us and like possibly become our champion in the prize. Uh, so it's not exactly the same definition as bottom-up selling uh, that you could see elsewhere, but uh, I think it's working anyway. Before we dive in is a quick fire. I do quickly, you said about kind of the, the free product that, that people can kind of get onboarded into Algolia with. Your chief competitor is an open source product. I'm very intrigued to hear your thoughts on the building of business models around open source products, one, and, and how you compete with free. So our biggest competition is, I would say, the internal teams of our, our customers uh, who may want to build that themselves. The mentality uh, is changing and more and more developers prefer to use like building blocks APIs but we still have like uh, quite a few developers who want to own to be able to build that themselves. I think it's good in a way to have that healthy tension because it's making everyone better. Open source uh, business models are very different in the ways that they mostly charge for support whereas we charge for a service. I much prefer SaaS and the, the main reason is that when you are doing SaaS you are aligned in between the product and the, the business. For us support is part of the of the subscription so our incentive is to make the product so simple so well documented so well so easy to implement that it's going to reduce the need of support because we don't charge for support whereas in terms of when you look at open source sometimes unfortunately support being the way they get most of their money the incentive may not be there to build a simpler product to spend more time on documentation i'm not saying that they don't want to do that it's just that simply the alignment is not there as much as with SaaS. I do want to dive into the 60-second SASTA. So a quick fire round. Nicolas's 60-second SASTA. Are you ready? Sure. Let's go. What hires do you wish you had made earlier? Marketing. VPN. 
And actually, it's still a, an open position. But then uh, many others like legal, setups, recruiters, executive assistant, all, the, all of them. Why haven't you hired a VP of marketing earlier? Oh, we tried. We tried probably too late. But uh, And we had uh, a couple of VPM uh, in the history of Algolia. But it's, uh, again, an open position. I'm sure we can add a link to uh, the application form as well in the show notes. <laughs> Send us an email, uh, jobs at algolia.com. There we go. Uh, how have you seen early stage SaaS startups go wrong most often now being operating in the ecosystem for many years? I always love to speak about culture. So maybe I would take culture there. I think uh, people realize when they are like one other people that they have a de facto culture instead of having been intentional about the kind of company they wanted to build. And then what does success look like to you with Algolia? I mean, me personally, I would say it's continue to learn. I mean, uh, the most important for me is more the journey than the, the end of the journey. And as long as I can learn every day, I'm super excited to, to continue the adventure. Moving out of the quick fire though, and we discussed the community of developers earlier. And so I want to finish on the community and the brand building element. Uh, as I said, something that Algolia have really excelled at. So tell me first on community, what are the keys to building such an engaged community of developers that not only kind of seed the very early adopter ecosystem, but also then permeate into the enterprise layer with the rise of maybe not traditional bottoms up, but a new case of bottoms up. What's the keys to building that engaged community? <laughs> if you would tell me, uh, I'd love to learn uh, that. No, it's, I think it's a, it's a mix of so many things. Uh, one of the things we did well, I mean, we were maybe lucky on this one, is that we were like targeting people that were very similar to us. I mean, we're, we're looking at uh, speaking to developers and we were developers. So we kind of like had a good understanding of the, the things they had in mind. So like we knew that building like very aggressive marketing would not work, like cold emailing, mass emailing would not work. And so we kind of tried to think differently and think, okay, what would we love to see as developers? And that really helped us in the early days. Uh, another thing we we've done, for example, here is that we don't have, till today, a support team. The support of the product is done entirely by the developer's team, and we don't have any dedicated support people, engineers, or anyone. And the thing is that because we are speaking with developers, developers, they hate support. They hate because often they are going to speak to someone who simply knows less than they do. And on the other hand, they love to speak to the people who have developed the product. So that's super good and positive for them. We think it's super important to have everyone in the company customer-facing it's good for us that developers can actually learn about the, the struggles, the pains of the developers who are implementing us to build a better product. So we're going to learn much more from the customers than from anyone else. Do you think developer-centric sales is also a fundamental way to go in terms of having salespeople who have that developer-centric mindset? I would say that the, the most important is to have salespeople who respect the developers. They need to understand the product. I think the, the in the same way, the way you build the internal company, like the how your sales are interacting with your developers is going to be reflected into how your sales are going to interact with uh, your customers' developers. And so it's, it's a good way to train them on that side. In our case, sales are interacting, of course, with developers, but they are also interacting with the buyers uh, because they are going to work mostly on the bigger deals and the buyers are no more going to be the tech team, but uh, could be like a VP of product or like uh, very different profiles. And so they also need that more traditional sales experience uh, to be successful there. And I want to finish today on a party and a party that is tech conferences. Now, if you go to a lot of tech conferences and SaaS conferences, you'll have seen Algolia present there and, and have a 
very strong presence there. So I'm intrigued, Nicholas. To what extent do events drive conversion for you? And is it largely a brown play, or is it really a lead converter and lead driver? <laughs> it really depends on the kind of event because there are like so many different between like like a meetup where it's mostly about brand, even like a big uh, big events like I don't know like Web Summit for example. It's huge in terms of number of attendees, but it's mostly about branding or at least targeting is long tail. But then you can go to very industry specific events where it's all about leads. If you go to Saster, uh, Saster, yeah, Saster, or you got like in a like for the SaaS, the SaaS industry, uh, you have IRCE happening uh, happening uh, right now in Chicago about uh, e-commerce. Um, these kind of events are more focused on leads, lead generation. Nicolas, as always, it's so much fun chatting to you. So thank you so much for joining me again today. Jason told me it'd be fantastic, and it's far surpassed all expectations. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Ari. That was super nice to be with you today. What a fantastic show that was with Nicolas. And again, I want to thank him so much for giving up his time today. Absolutely brilliant to have him on the show and hear his incredible journey with Algolia. And again, a big hand to Jason for making the introduction without which this episode would not have been possible. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings or follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. It would be fantastic to see you there. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you the next episode.